T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. 909, Monday morning, February 27th, second to last day of February. Greg Upton joins us now, Associate Research Professor at LSU Center for Energy Studies. Good morning, Professor. How are you? Good morning, Tommy. Doing great. Do you have a nice Monday Gras season? You do anything to celebrate? Ride a parade? I, I did. I did. So we actually went up to central Louisiana where my family's from, mm-hmm. and our kids got to play with their cousins. We did a crawfish boil. It was really nice. Now, that's not where you go chasing the chicken, right? I I got the entire state of Louisiana chasing chickens from Mardi Gras, and I understand it's only in one place, and that's in southwestern Louisiana, I think. That's right. In fact, when I was in college, I went with a good friend of mine to southwest Louisiana who grew up, yeah, and dressed up and did the chicken chase. It was awesome, but, yeah, but, no, that's not from my neck of the woods. Okay. How was that? I've never spoken to anybody that's done that before. It's not why you came on, but I'm just curious about that. Was it fun? Oh, it was awesome. Were you on it horseback really or not? Cool. No, we didn't do on horseback. So we were on a little, it was kind of like a float, but it was just a trailer. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know, 20 guys piled in there. They're all dressed up in this garb. And you go from house to house to house. And then at each one, you do a very specific uh, song in French. And kind of the tradition is that you're asking everyone from from each house for a different ingredient for cooking later that afternoon. Um, and then that's where you, you chase the chicken because, of course, the chicken would be one one ingredient in the, the gumbo that you're cooking. So yeah, that's awesome, fun. Greg. I'm, thank you for sharing that with us. I've often wondered how that works. I, I would presume there might have been some beer involved. You know, there was. There was. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Just a little bitty bit of beer. Yeah, just a little bit. Right, right. Let's talk about wind energy and what it is that the Biden administration um, did last week. So, yeah, so there's been a lot of actually exciting developments in offshore wind here in Louisiana over the last year or so. So most recently, this last week, the Biden administration uh, um, announced that they're going to start opening up for an offshore wind lease in the Gulf of Mexico. And that would be in federal waters, which is beyond three miles from from the shoreline here in Louisiana. And so, you know, that process is getting kicked off. They're, they're going to take comments, and there'll have to be environmental impact statements and a few other things. But the process is starting. We, you know, if everything goes as planned, we could actually see a, a lease sale for offshore wind as, as soon as this fall, maybe in the winter. Again, that's if everything goes as planned. Last year, though, also interestingly, the state legislature here in Louisiana uh, also passed some legislation that gave the state mineral board the authority to do uh, offshore wind leases in Louisiana in addition to oil and gas, which is what it's done for for many, many years. And so, again, that regulatory framework has also been set up 
And as a result of these regulatory frameworks being set up, we're starting to see projects moving and companies are interested in developing projects. And um, you never know, in the next five years or so, we could see offshore wind here in Louisiana. Did I dream this, Greg? Because I've been trying to find it and I can't find it anywhere. Something about cutting back on leases because of concerns with seafood or oil and gas? Or did I dream that? And I'm not being goofy Um, here when I say that. I thought, sure, I saw a story on it, but I can't find it anywhere. Yes, I mean, the specific thing last year was House Bill 165 by Zerang and Orgeron that is now Act 144 that set up the Mineral Board to be able to do that. Now, of course, the Mineral Board, whenever they do leasing, they're going to consider – you know, all the implications of that economic activity and, and how it might impact other sectors within the economy. And so it doesn't matter what economic development you're talking about. There's always going to be kind of frictions that happen with, uh, you know, with other industries, and those things would definitely be taken into account. But I'm personally optimistic that we'll see we'll see some projects moving forward. Maybe there was a little bit of beer involved in that as well. <laughs> as well. <laughs> Um, let me talk about because uh, we, you know, you and I have spoken about this before with the development of wind energy that it doesn't have to come at the expense of seafood or oil and gas. Is there any evidence where this has been done in other places that it, it that it does harm the seafood industry? Because you know there was a back in the day, people don't remember this there, and you can find movies about this with Jimmy Stewart and all that stuff, but where the shrimpers were not nuts about the oil and gas industry, then they realized that it was actually a boon to the industry, the seafood industry. I just wonder how, what history shows about wind turbines and seafood, and is there any positive effect, negative effect? So I am not an expert on the ecological piece of it, um, but I have been in many discussions around the development of these offshore wind farms, and I've never heard anyone bring up uh, negative impact on fisheries or anything like that. So I'm not saying it couldn't be the mm-hmm. case, but but I've personally never seen uh, you know seen something that that brought that up as a major concern. And the reason I bring it up, Greg, when it comes to oil and gas as well, is you know sometimes, and we've spoken about this before. Whenever you say wind, people that are in oil and gas maybe feel threatened. And look, if 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 it was my industry and something was going to do away with radio, I'd be concerned as well. But if it would be something that would create more jobs and enhance the industry, uh, I would be all for it. And I just wonder, with this wind, is it necessarily going to be at the expense of oil and gas, or is it just kind of two unrelated things? So the kind of interesting thing with offshore wind here in Louisiana is that we actually already have a workforce that's set up to service that, and that workforce is the offshore oil and gas industry. And whenever you look at some of the pilot projects that have happened in the Northeast, um, you know, these are anecdotal stories. There's only two or three projects up there right now, and they're what we call pilot scale. They're not very large wind farms like we're talking about developing down here. But they actually had to pull in expertise from people in Louisiana that historically serviced that oil and gas industry. And so I think that one of the reasons why would we would be an attractive place to develop is because we have that workforce. And I think that that workforce, once they start to work on these projects and they see that a lot of the skill sets you need are very, very similar in terms of working offshore and, and these big industrial uh, you know, facilities, um, I think that what we'll find is, is that these are actually really complementary to our existing industries here. 
and uh, you know, hopefully they can coexist for for many years together. So when it comes to a lease, geologists with oil companies guess right if oil is going to be there. They they do their. I, I don't think they do. They have a chance to drill, or do they just guess where the oil is going to be, and that's how they decide to bid on a lease. Yeah, so they'll do a bunch of modeling that's based upon other wells that have been drilled in the area and those kind of things. And it, But it won't be until after they obtain the lease that they actually go drill that first well. So when it comes yeah. to wind leases, I guess they know that the wind's going to be there. How do they determine that and if it would be of value to them to get a lease for wind acreage? Yeah, yeah so they have, these, they have these buoys that they go and put out in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And the buoys, of course, collect wind data over some period of time. And then what they do is they extrapolate that wind speed that's going to be, you know, very close to the ocean to up, you know, 60 meters or whatever they are. They're very, very, very tall. Um, and then they use this calculation in order to extrapolate that up. And then they kind of have, again, formulas that say, okay, how much electricity would be generated if the wind blew at that speed over time? So they'll do research on that. The other big piece with considering offshore wind is actually how you get the power on shore. So you need to, first of all, get the power on shore. But once it gets on shore, you need the transmission infrastructure that is set up to be able to move that power to demand centers. And so equally as important as, okay, well, where is the wind blowing? Probably, in fact, maybe even more importantly is where those demand centers that the power is going to go to and what infrastructure is already set up that you could plug into. So those are going to be equally as important, if not more important, considerations for where you would actually site one of these things. Yeah, I was wondering about that because, okay, we're, we're um, drilling for oil and gas, and then we transfer it over and we store it or we refine it or we do this, we do that. With wind, we are creating what, Greg? What are we creating? We're creating what, voltage? Electrons. What we, electrons, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So essentially how pretty much all power is generated is you have a magnet and you have a piece of metal. And you spin that magnet around the piece of metal or the other way, it doesn't matter. And then what that does is that creates electricity. And so if you think about a, you know, a natural gas turbine, that's actually what it's doing. It's spinning that magnet around that metal. But how are you what what energy are you using in order to spin that? Well, you're using natural gas that you're combusting. Wind is no different um, in that you've got, you know, this turbine and it's spinning and it's generating that electricity. And so all of these different electricity sources are going to generate power that go into that grid. And then you have a, a in, in Louisiana, we have what's called the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator that's responsible for the constant dispatch of that grid to make sure that the demand every moment of the day is exactly equal to the supply such that our lights stay on and they're not flickering and and those kind of things. So we're storing what? You take this energy that's generated by the turbine and you you send it down a line in the form of electrons. Professor, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm getting in an area where I could hurt myself here by using the wrong word. So (laughs) please help me. It's picture an old man with a uh, with a. with roller skates and a walker, that's what it is, me talking about this scientific oh, no. stuff. But um, So then we got to get it to a battery to store it? or what? Tell you what, let me take a break here because I see the clock is at 920. Let's take a break. We'll pick it up here when we come back. So the wind blows a turbine, and then we're generating the magnets going around. And what did you say? The steel? 
Yeah, so a piece of metal will will be spun around a magnet, and and that process will create electricity. And for you guys that paid attention in science in high school, I apologize to you. I really do. But I apparently didn't. So we're learning this. So from that point, where does it go, and what do we do with it? How efficient is that process, and how efficient could it be? We're talking to Greg Upton, Associate Research Professor at LSU Center for Energy Studies. This stuff fascinates me. I could talk to Greg for nine hours at a time. He's lucky I'm not in one of his classes because he would have to ask me to leave. Uh, 260187, if you have any, have any questions, Biden administration proposed wind energy lease sales for the Gulf of Mexico. States on board with the mineral, I guess, uh, board getting involved in that as well. Commission, we'll be back. Tommy Tucker, glad you're with us, WWL. 925 now on WWL. We're talking with Greg Upton, Associate Research Professor at LSU Center for Energy Studies. Somebody texted in, Greg, and, and I get this text. I think it's from the same person every time we talk about wind energy. Ask about the disposal of the wind turbine blades. They don't have a recycle program. They just sit in a blade graveyard. Um, I don't know that there's any energy um, creation that doesn't exist in that doesn't uh, result in byproducts or things that are left over is there yeah every single source of energy that we have has negative environmental externalities this is true with oil and gas it's true with solar it's true with wind it's true with all the futuristic visions we have talking about hydrogen everything else and so you know the big uh i think concern with renewable energy and this is wind and solar that's a legitimate concern that's brought up out there, is that you still have to mine these raw materials from the ground in order to produce these turbines and these, these uh, you know, solar panels and everything else in order to produce that electricity. So and, there is, yeah, absolutely. Well, well go ahead, Greg. No, I'm just going to say there ain't nothing free. You know what I mean? It's not, we, well, until John Gold shows up from Atlas Shrugged and creates the uh, perpetual energy machine, I don't think there'll ever be anything like that. But when it comes to our conversation of, of before, where, okay, so the, the ma- it's electricity 101, I guess, a magnet turns around the steel, we, we create these, uh, these uh, whatever we create, electrons, ions, whatever it is, and we send them down a line from the wind turbine. How does that turn into something that will power our vehicles, power our houses, et cetera? Well, it's a massive machine, literally, a grid that connects literally where the power is generated all the way to your house. And so every single minute of every single day, there are system operators that are constantly monitoring exactly what the demand is at all of these very, very granular locations. And then they have to balance the amount of electricity generation Again, at every single moment of every single day, taking into account the system that's set up, i.e. the grid, where, where those lines are in order to get the power from point A to point B. And so literally that wind farm, that hypothetical wind farm that we're talking about, or that, you know, that natural gas power plant or coal power plant or nuclear, whatever it is, is physically connected to your individual house where you're using electricity. And so, there's someone every moment of every day balancing that. So we're sending it directly from the turbine, the wind farm, to the grid? Absolutely. And then you and I plug into this grid whenever we're using electricity, as we're using right now, talking here on our phones and looking at our computers. and Absolutely. So how much do we lose in transmission? Is it, when it comes to wind turb- uh, turbine energy, is it a... 
uh, an efficient source of energy creation? Yeah, so the electric grid is actually going to have some what we call line losses, and those line losses are going to occur regardless of the form of energy that is produced. So whenever we dispatch power to the grid, the grid doesn't know the difference of whether it's you know wind energy or generated from natural gas or coal. There are very specific technical requirements that have to be met before that power can be pushed to the grid. Um, but along that grid, it's something about like a eight, nine, ten percent what we call line loss. So there's going to be some share of the electricity that's generated that is then pushed to the grid, and then some of that's going to be lost by the time it gets to us to our house. So that's typically, as I said, you know, something less than ten percent is kind of the rule of thumb that people use. So what's the negative here? Because it seems to me, and you and I have had this conversation before, and I understand if people are in oil and gas and they fear they're going to be replaced. But it seems like, well, if this is an alternative source, oil and gas is not going anywhere, even to the creation of, I guess, the the petrochemicals used to create the turbine blades themselves, right? So oil and gas is not going anywhere. Why would people be opposed to this? It just seems like a win-win situation to me. What What is the other side saying, Greg? Am I missing something? Yes, I mean, the the flip side that I think we that does need to be talked about is the cost, right? And so when we look at states that implemented what are called these renewable portfolio standards that were happening in the 2000s, what states did is they said, okay, we're going to require some percentage of the power being generated to come from renewables. Well, if the renewables were the most economic form of power generation, then no such requirement would have been needed, right? People would have just built out the renewables anyway. But the reality was was that the renewables were not the least expensive, which is why you had to have the renewable portfolio standard to begin with. And some research I actually did several years ago that's you know been published for several years found that those states that implemented those renewable portfolio standards actually saw about a 10% increase in electricity prices relative to states that did not. So you know the kind of good news for Louisiana is we're building this wind out, or at least talking about building the wind out. Is we don't have a renewable a renewable portfolio standard, uh, the really economics of these projects is being driven by the the pretty large subsidies that the federal government is is putting um, to allow for these projects to happen. And you know the the reality is, Tommy, if it wasn't for these pretty large subsidies, um, you know these renewable projects likely wouldn't move forward. Is wind what it is, or is there a way to make this more efficient? some kind of way to improve it so that it does become more cost-effective? Are we in its infancy, I guess, Greg, is what I'm asking? Or is there, because of the physics involved, a lot of room for any improvement? Uh, So I would definitely say it is not uh, industry in its infancy. In fact, wind energy was one of the first, in fact, I think probably was the first source of energy that humans harnessed uh, way back when, thinking about windmills to grind grain and all those kind of things. Mm Uh, and if you look at offshore wind in particular, we've had— uh, to, to be clear, know, Professor, I meant on this type of scale. No, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. I'm going back super far. But uh, even even with offshore wind at this large scale, we've had over uh, you know almost three decades of experience with that now, going back to the early 1990s. In fact, I think the first one was uh, in, in the 19, early 1990s in Europe. So, no, we've had—this is not a, an industry in its infancy— The question for us is if we want to reduce carbon emissions on the grid, there is going to be some cost. It's going to be a little bit higher cost 
to have lower carbon electricity today than it is to have that higher carbon intensive electricity. And so it really comes to a question that we as a society have to ask. Are we going to pay more for our power, whether that is through you know, putting it on to ratepayers that we pay in our electricity bills, or it's through federal spending that, you know, obviously we pay taxes and, and take out federal debt in order to, uh, you know, in order to have this, this federal spending. Is it worth that cost to reduce the emissions on the grid? And that is the legitimate trade-off um, that, that we have to consider here. But but going back to, you know, its infancy and how long man has been using it and so forth, is it basically what it is? Is there any way to squeeze any more um, energy out of it, any way to make the process more efficient? Or is it pretty much, no, you got the steel and the magnet and the wind, and that's about it? So I definitely think there's room for technological advancements. But, and this is, I think, a big but, a lot of models, you know, of models will go out there and say, okay, well, I'm going to have this kind of technology, and I'm going to assume that it has technological advancement, and none of the other technologies have technological advancement. And if you set up a model in that way, what you always find is, oh, well, that, that technology will be the technology of the future. But the reality is, is that all technologies advance. And so the question isn't, will offshore wind get more efficient? I think absolutely the answer, it will. Everything gets more efficient over time as we as humans learn how to do these things better. But it's not going to be the only technology to get um, to, to become more efficient. And so, you know, whether it is just more economic without subsidies in 10 years from now, uh, you know, I, I do not know. I don't think anyone knows the answer to that question. But today, um, it's certainly higher cost than, than the alternative, which is uh, combined cycle natural gas generation, which is the, the lowest cost today if you were building a new plant just strictly on economics. I mentioned John Galt earlier from Atlas Shrugged. You can Google it if you don't understand, not you, Professor, but if y'all don't understand what I'm talking about, you can Google it. Um, if not this, what? If, if not you, offshore wind, what? Yeah, well, if not wind, yeah, if not wind and if not uh, solar, what? Well, For people I mean, that are got, against it, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, so you've got, you got several options. So the other big option that's a low-carbon source of electricity that also doesn't combust a hydrocarbon that produces nuclear energy. Right. And there's a lot of discussion out there. If we are really serious about decarbonizing the grid uh, very rapidly, um, likely nuclear energy is probably the fastest way to do that. Because you can generate very, very large amounts of electricity very, very, very consistently. You don't have all these intermittency issues. But again, that has these negative environmental externalities. You've got this nuclear waste and, um, you know, other issues like that to deal with. The other options out there, of course, natural gas and coal generation. Um, both of those have we've used for a century here in the United States very successfully. Um, the problem with those is that they are the combustion of a hydrocarbon. And when you combust a hydrocarbon, well, that's going to generate uh, carbon dioxide emissions, which, of course, impacts the global climate. And so, uh, yes, I mean, those are really the big ones in the United States is you've got nuclear, coal, gas um, generation. How big could wind get in the Gulf? Oh, it could get really big. I mean, if you look at, um, for instance, if you look at the Southwest Power Pool, which is the power pool to the northwest of it, so that's in like Oklahoma, um, Nebraska, that, that area, it's about a third of their generation over the, the course of the year comes from wind. 
And so if we were to do a really large build out of offshore wind along the Gulf of Mexico, which is technically feasible, um, it's not inconceivable that we could get to those kind of levels of the electricity coming from wind here, here in southern Louisiana. Any final thoughts, Professor? Yeah, I mean, I think the final thought is, is that all of these technologies have trade-offs, um, and it's, it's a matter of considering those trade-offs, not only those economic trade-offs, but over also those environmental trade-offs. But for us as a state today, given that these subsidies have been passed through Congress um, and is being paid for by the federal government, from just a state perspective, it really does make sense in order to go through, you know, to, to move forward with these technologies um, and take advantage of those subsidies. Again, maybe you wouldn't have voted for those subsidies if you were the one in Congress, could be a different question. Um, but given that those subsidies have been passed, I think a lot of pragmatic companies and policymakers are, are you know, basically moving forward with it. Professor, a pleasure as always. Thanks for suffering this fool gladly as you always do. Greg Upton, Associate <laughs> Research Professor at LSU Center for Energy Studies. We'll talk to you again soon. When we come back, we're talking to Mike Perlstein about a 33% increase in catalytic converter thefts in New Orleans right now. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.